Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Contemplating Christian. Today, we have a very special day. We're doing an interview with uh, Dr. Ed Smither on the topic of missionary monks. And so we are excited for this, and we're going to welcome Dr. Smither. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Good to be here. Yeah, good to have you. Thank you for volunteering your time. Um, and we we want to get started and get right into this. But uh, first, we would love for you to tell us a little bit about your academic career and an overview of that before we actually get into the topic. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, actually, I started teaching in a university in North Africa uh, oh, over 20 years ago. That was my first foray into teaching in a um, in a university there. I taught for four years while I was working on PhD work uh, in patristics and early church uh, right. in Britain. Um, and then I taught for uh, six years at the what used to be the seminary. Now it's a school of divinity at Liberty. Um, where Samuel, you're a student. Mm -hmm. And then for the last 11 years, I've been at Columbia International University. Um, and for the last eight years, I've served as dean of the College of Intercultural Studies. And mm -hmm. so, um, so my, uh, my, like, formal academic training has been both in the early church and church history and what I would call history of global Christianity. Um, hmm. but also uh, with mission and missiology. So I'm happiest when I think about and get to study um, history of mission movements. So, and that's just right. where uh, monks kind of came up in that. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's, so I kind of and the, the, the disciplines of, uh, of church history and mission studies. Yeah. Right. And what made you want to, uh, what, like, why'd you choose missions and specifically the, area of monks and uh, maybe even more specific patristics? Yeah, sure. Well, um, yeah, it's kind of a complicated question, but I think I was most interested in the history of the early church. Um, I did my doctoral studies, I wrote on St. Augustine, uh, but I was serving also in cross-cultural ministry in North Africa and, and in mm -hmm. Europe. And so it just became natural to want to understand what had happened in the past. I think there's a lot of wisdom for pastors and missionaries and uh, God's people to learn a bit about the past. Um, mm -hmm. We don't really value that a lot in North American society. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and the, the whole idea of missionary monks came up. I was, I was teaching a one semester course in mission history that I started teaching about 15 years ago. Um, and as I prepared, um, you know, I I realized that from about the year 400 to about the year 1500, the, the leading missionaries in the church were monks. And I thought, mm. this is curious. Monks don't strike me as missionary types. So we need to investigate this. And yeah. that's how the book came about. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's fascinating. I usually, when I hear the word mission, and I think me and mo most people, when you hear the word mission, we think about certain things. And when we hear the word monk, we hear and think about certain other things as well. And they don't typically go together. And right. so we wanted to kind of define both those things. Mm -hmm. um, but first, we'll start with mission. Um, you have a phrase in your app opening chapter on what is mission, where you say, if everything is, then nothing is. Mm -hmm. So what is mission? Mm -hmm. How would you define what mission is in the context of Christianity? Yeah, well, mission doesn't appear in the Bible. Mission or missions, uh, of course, mm -hmm. 
the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible either, but right. we believe God is Trinity. Um, the word that we see over, used over 800 times in the Old Testament and, and a great deal in the New Testament is actually the word sending. And so yeah. God is ascending God. So in the, right. in the Garden of Eden, God sends himself um, to deal with Adam and Eve. God sends his prophets. God sends his son. God sends his church, sends his Holy Spirit. So, um, so mission, uh, or missions is about sending, um, you know, the, the ancient term missio dei that the church fathers used really dealt with how the father, son, and Holy spirit relate to the world. What is the, uh, what is the work of God, um, outside yeah. of Godhead? Uh, and that's, that's really the foundation for the Nicene creed. What does the father do? The son do the Holy spirit do, um, right. and so, um, so mission is about sending. It comes from the heart and nature of God, and God invites his people into that. So God sets apart Abraham. God sets apart Israel. God sends his son. God sets apart the church. God sets, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Right. Um, so in my in light of that, my big sophisticated definition that I really was inspired by the South African theologian, David Bosch, who said, really, mission is about crossing boundaries. Um, it's crossing boundaries from the people of faith to the not yet people of faith. Hmm. And we often think that mission is getting on a plane and going across water and learning culture and language. It is all of that. But the greatest boundaries that we cross in mission is uh, our faith boundaries. And yeah. so that can happen on our street and that can, of course, happen in, in our world as well. And, and of course, the, the arena, the context for God's mission is all of the nations and all peoples. So, right. mm -hmm. and I, right. I would just add, I, I'd make a distinction. I define missions um, mm -hmm. as how God's people participate in the mission of God. And that could yeah. be lots of things. Um, I would just say that if we exclude proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then we've then we're no longer involved in Christian mission. We're involved in, in, in otherwise good work, but... Right. Uh, but preaching is um, is central to uh, the work of mission. Right. So you talk about, that's really helpful. You talk about um, this idea of physical needs and spiritual needs um, in mission work and how both are essential, mm -hmm. but uh, in terms of um, like uh, chronological priority, one might come before the other. Uh, so could you talk about maybe how those that the relationship between physical needs and spiritual needs and meeting those things in missions. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we obviously, we want to imitate and follow our Lord in mission. And so Jesus, uh, Jesus healed the sick and fed the poor and opened the eyes of the blind. Um, so yeah. those are what, what I would call deed ministry, caring for real human needs. Uh, but mission is in word and deed it's word yeah. and it's proclaiming the, the, the good news of God's ways and ultimately the death, burial and resurrection. Um, you know, I think that this is where we rely on the Holy spirit in mission because there are, if, if somebody's at my front door and they're hungry, mm -hmm. I don't say, well, first of all, I need you to hear something and then we'll move on to food. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it just kind of depends as we discern the spirits leading. Um, yeah. So it, it's, um, but, but, but we, 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 we say mission is in both in word and deed. Right. Yeah, that's good. I think of just uh, what comes to mind is in Acts, all the places where 
feel like the Holy Spirit is completely guiding everything. Mm -hmm. uh, places where it, it says like the Holy Spirit constrained them from going to Asia, things like that. So that's fascinating. Kind of going into the uh, monasticism piece of it. Uh, when I think of a monk, I think of which it, this isn't false, but when I think about a monk, I think about a, a guy who's in his cell who never leaves and prays. And I think of Catholicism at the same time as well. Mm -hmm. So what is, how does monasticism, what is monasticism? What is a monk? And how does that relate to missions? Yeah, big question. Well, that's really kind of what the whole book's about, but I'll <laughs> yeah. give a quick answer. Um, you know, monastic life is really uh, built on three things. Um, in Latin, they say ora et labora, prayer and work, uh, <clears throat> and then study. So prayer is um, obviously engaging with God in prayer. And most monks historically have used the Psalms as their mm -hmm. guidance for, for learning to pray. Um, work would be manual labor, uh, things like farming, gardening, typically work that not only sustained monks and their livelihood and simple living, um, but also was a type of work that helped them to pray. So farming and agriculture, you could get your, get your hands in the dirt and uh, just like Adam did in the garden and pray and worship and work all at the same time. Um, right. So, and then study is obviously the study of scripture and, uh, and, and obviously monastic life took on monks were innovators in scientific research and, and, and other things as well. So, so those are the kind of the three things. Um, monasticism and all is also built on withdrawal from the world, from the noise of the world. And so uh, monks, uh, their inspiration historically is our Lord, who went for 40 days into the desert, um, was tempted there, uh, but was praying, was fasting, was meditating on scripture and doing battle with the devil, quoting Deuteronomy and all this mm -hmm. good stuff. Um, but also to the fact that uh, we read in the Gospels that Jesus withdrew uh, to be with the Father and, and to be in quiet. Um, so that's one inspiration from scripture. The other, mm -hmm. you'd mentioned the book of Acts, is, um, is that the community of early believers, Acts 2, Acts 4, they held everything in common. They didn't mm -hmm. have personal private property um, and they shared everything in common. And so, so those, uh, when you look at like St. Augustine and other early monastic rules, um, act, the Acts chapter 4 community is a real inspiration um, as well. And so, yes, yes, there is withdrawal. Um, part, of, part of what prompted it historically is monasticism really took off in the fourth century after the emperor Constantine uh, gave legitimacy and recognition to the church. Mm -hmm. um, prior to that, Christians had suffered, some had become martyrs, and there was a group that said, you know, we, we don't want to be accepted in this world. We don't want to be compromised. We don't want to water down our faith. So monasticism and withdrawing into the desert away from places became the new martyrdom. Right. Uh, and so, so again, it was to not be, uh, to not, um, you know, not be driven by the things of the world. Um, so part of the, part of the thing is we think, we sometimes think that monks are just those that one monk goes off individually, and that is one school of monasticism. They're called anchorites right. or hermits. Um, but most monks historically have been what we call kinobitic or communal monks, where they live together in community. 
praying, working, um, studying together. Uh, mm -hmm. But part of monastic labor becomes serving the community. And so, mm -hmm. so people like, um, I, I was just in Italy and I visited the monastery of St. Benedict that was built in the sixth century. Um, mm -hmm. That's up on a mountaintop far away from people. There were monks like that. Um, uh, although, uh, although uh, Gregory, uh, Pope Gregory said that uh, Benedict went out into the community and in the areas and preached the gospel too. So mm -hmm. he left the, the monastic walls. Um, but more specifically, I know we'll talk about uh, St. Basil and St. Augustine, uh, but they built their monasteries in the middle of the city. And so, yeah. and they weren't just monks, they were also bishops and church leaders. Right. <clears throat> and so the doors to their monastery were open to visitors, especially for right. hospitality. So, um, so I think you, my, uh, my argument in the book is that monastic labor over time came to include um, preaching the gospel and going into different parts of the world and going on um, the Celtic monks, especially went on pilgrimages. Yeah. And when they went on their pilgrimages, they, they met unbelievers. And what do you do when you meet unbelievers? You share Christ, you start churches, you start new monasteries. So, right. Yeah. That was the, <clears throat> one of the biggest things I was struck by was just the, the spectrum of what falls under monasticism and all the different types of it. I think today, like, uh, so I'm kind of grown up in an evangelical church. Um, and I think evangelicals, when they hear monk, they think uh, other Christian traditions, um, but they have a strong conception of missionaries and missions. Mm -hmm. um, and those two worlds just aren't really connecting. And so to see that, well, yeah, the early church and kind of going into the medieval period and stuff, it was those two worlds weren't separate. They were kind of together. Church leaders uh, were all kind of in this missionary sending sort of context as well. So now I can want to, kind of dive into some specific uh, characters that you highlight in your book. Sam, you want to take that away? Yeah. So um, we aren't going to be able to go over all of them, but we are going to go over some. And the first one is, uh, as you mentioned, Dr. Smither, uh, St. Basil. Mm -hmm. And so um, just to start off with this character, we we just want you to answer the question, what was, what was Basil's context that he was working with it? Yeah. So um, kind of give us a, a background of who he is and where he was and everything he was working with. Yeah. Yeah. Basil, you know, he um, died at the age of 49, so he didn't live a very long life, uh, but it was a full one. Um, he lived in Asia Minor. He was the Bishop of Neo Caesarea, which today is the Eastern part of Turkey. Um, so if you go to Cappadocia or Diyarbakir or that, this is where St. Basil lived. And I had the privilege to go there several years ago. Um, but, um, you know, Basel was, uh, he, this is where he lived. He was trained in philosophy. He, he, he actually grew up in a monastic family. His parents, though his mm -hmm. parents were married, they practiced asceticism as a family. So prayer and quiet and studying scripture. Um, and after he finished university, he was quite puffed up with his studies in philosophy and, um, and his older sister, you know, just really challenged him toward, living a monastic life. So he and a, a friend, Gregory of Nazianzus, who they're two of the three Cappadocian fathers, um, they withdrew onto Basil's family estate and started to live a monastic type of existence. Um, and so he's, Basil's going to be set apart as the bishop of Caesarea. And um, 
it, it was a turbulent time. Um, he, uh, you know, there was conflict with uh, the Roman emperors um, after Constantine, though peace was given to the church. Um, a number of the emperors, including Constantine's sons, were Arian in their theology. Um, so they didn't believe in the Christ was eternal. And Basel really had conflict about sound doctrine. Um, and so even the, you know, even the emperor tried to reduce his influence and separated his diocese <clears throat> so that he would have less impact. Um, hmm. But the other thing is there were, you know, there were great social problems in, in the year 368. Just before Basel became bishop, there was an earthquake in that part of the world and a great famine started. And so people were, Basel preached a series of sermons called The Hungry Are Dying. Um, and uh, I mean, they're called his hunger sermons because literally people were starving to death. And so as he thought about what does it mean <clears throat> to be a monk and a bishop <clears throat> in, in a world like this, um, <clears throat> that's when he would, um, you know, constructed what was called the Basileas or the kind of a ministry compound that included food distribution and uh, an early hospital, um, hospitality wow. house. Uh, even job training um, and things like that. And so so what we were talking about earlier about mission and word and deed, I think he really exemplifies this. Um, so it was, um, you know, he he ministered during a very difficult time. It was turbulent theologically. Um, Basel was one of the key architects. He, he, he wrote the earliest standalone treatise on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And so the, yeah. so the update to the Nicene Creed at the Council of Constantinople in 381 is really owing largely to Basel's articulation of the of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, he was dealing with you know with with um, <clears throat> you know attacks on basic Christian orthodoxy, um, but also really significant problems and so social right. problems. And so so Basel's um, uh, again his monastery they built it right in the middle of the city. Um, he lived among life of, of prayer, of devotion, of quiet. Um, and he exemplifies really well this tension that a number of monks dealt with of the contemplative life and the active life. Mm -hmm. um, how much of our day do we send, spend in prayer and study and before the face of God? And how much of our day do we spend with our sleeves rolled up um, in the work of, of ministry? And, and Basel was a, a really good balance of that. Um, yeah. I would just add that the the missionary aspect where he lived also was an intercultural crossroads between uh, Armenia and the Gothic regions. Uh, it was a very multicultural place. And so just where that urban center was on the Roman roads in Asia Minor, um, he was dealing with people from all kinds of cultural backgrounds. Yeah. And Basil, Basil is a fascinating character and he is uh he has, he has a lot to work with. And so you, you mentioned three things specifically that we can really take away from this and, and learn from. Uh, so the, the three are uh, the, the area of theology. So he was, um, he was confronting theological issues. And then he, his other big one was poverty and homelessness and uh, starvation. That's, that's the second thing. And then the third thing was actually some political conflict. And, and so in the book, you kind of go over some strategies and techniques that we can learn from Basil. And so the first one I actually want to go over is conflicts with 
political leaders and what we can learn about that. And I would, I would actually like to read uh, an excerpt from your book on a way that Basil responds to a political leader, which is just very bold. Um, so, so here it is. It says, fear of what, said Basil, how could it affect me? Confiscation, banishment, torture, death. Have you no other threat, said he, for none of these can reach me because a man who has nothing is beyond the reach of confiscation unless you demand my tattered rags and the few books which are my only possessions. Banishment is impossible for me, who am confined by no limit of space, counting my own, neither the land where I now dwell, nor all of that into which I may be hurled. As for tortures, what hold can they have upon one whose body has ceased to be? Death is my benefactor, for it will send me the sooner to God. Amazed at this language, the prefect said, no one has ever yet spoken thus, and with such boldness to Modestus. Why, perhaps, said Basil, you have not met a bishop where the interests of God are at stake. We care for nothing else and make these our sole object. Hmm. So with, with Basil there, we obviously see a boldness, right? When he's confronting these political leaders, like you wouldn't budge when it came to the issues of God, right? Okay. So um, what's... When it, when it comes to political conflict or confronting leaders, what what can we learn from from Basil in that instance? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, part of the thing is that the 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 governor or the emperor couldn't really put um, economic sanctions on him because he didn't own anything. Uh, <laughs> that that's I, I suppose that's one benefit when you don't have anything, no one can take anything away from you. Um. I think, um, you know, he also kind of uh, kind of anticipating some of the thoughts of St. Augustine. He he really kind of talks about the allegiance to two cities. Um, you know, his work as a bishop and stewarding and shepherding God's church is much harder than being a governor and emperor. So um, so he saw Basel was one of the ones that saw that the government actually serves the church in his conception of political theology. Um and so, um, so he definitely was bold. And um, I think also too, from Basel's background, he did come from a wealthy and an educated background. So he was probably more, he wasn't afraid of the governors. He, he, he didn't fear their, uh, the governor, the emperor, you know, he, he could have walked in those circles himself from his wealthy background. Um, um, so I, I, think, I think that was a part of it. Um, but but the interesting thing, I mean, sometimes we, we would call this today a prophetic voice of speaking truth to power, uh, where he wasn't afraid to do that uh, because of, of his calling as a bishop. Right. Uh, but at the same time, we mentioned the Basileus that they built to care for the poor. He did enlist the emperor's help and got him to donate to it. So mm -hmm. he had, he, he, he wasn't just drawing lines with the government and, and, firing grenades at them, he was asking them to help and to deal with the situation. So um, there's a there's a missiologist that I like, Stephen Bevins, who, who talks about prophetic dialogue. And that mm -hmm. is being in, you have relationships with people, you have friendships, um, but it, with those friendships, you're not afraid to actually tell the truth of the gospel or to call people out for, uh, you know, for, for sin. And um, and in a way, I, I kind of see Basel doing that with with the emperor and with the governor Modestus here. 
Mm. Yeah. And that's, that's actually really good. It, it does take courage to have that prophetic voice. And uh, I think today in, in our society, there, there are definitely places where we see a lack of that. And Mm -hmm. I think that's one thing we can learn from him that, and not just opposing the government because we, we do see that a lot. Just people, uh, hate what the government's good doing or do, don't want anything to do with the government, but Basil actually employs the government and uses them, which is uh, another technique we can learn. And then um, when, it, when it comes to Basil, another thing he dealt with was poverty. You actually said that that was probably one of the biggest things he had, his hunger sermons. Um, and people were literally starving to death. Uh, so with, with starvation and poverty, uh, and, and all of these issues, that was a big part of his ministry and what he was actually preaching. So our question for this one is specifically for Americans, how could we change our mindset or what can we take from Basil to apply to America's situation right now? Um, and is there anything similar between like what might be happening today and what's what was happening in Basil's time? So uh, what would you what would you say? Yeah, well, obviously, Jesus said the poor will always be with us. And I think in one sense, that's that's a point that we will always need to be caring for the poor. Um, I think right now in our country with inflation and people trying to make a dollar stretch, it doesn't go as far as it did. And um, even with the volatility with Russia and Ukraine and what that's doing to fuel and <clears throat> grain prices and other things, um, you know, it, it, it is a, it, it is not a dissimilar world to Basel's where, where, where people mm -hmm. are, um, where, where there are people that have been born poor and have stayed in poverty, but Basel also talked to those who had fallen into poverty. Um, it's interesting that, uh, a couple of thoughts from Basel is that he, um, he definitely rebuked also in a prophetic way, those that oppress the poor, those that gouged on prices. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was just made aware of someone yesterday whose rent, uh, so this is a, a retired woman. Her rent has gone up from like 600 to $700 to $1,000 in the last month. Mm -hmm. um, really with what looks to be just kind of gouging of, of prices. And that's, and Basel would speak to that to say that's that's unjust and that needs to stop. Um, hmm. um, interestingly, too, um, ba Basel he confronted those who who were wealthy who hoarded their goods um, that didn't share with the poor, mm -hmm. um, and so we definitely live in a world where there are people who are uber rich and have have more money than what they know what to do with. Uh, but are hoarding that. And, mm -hmm. uh, and obviously scripture teaches that God loves a cheerful giver. Um, and so, um, um, so, so that's the thing as well. The other thing that Basel was actually hard on the poor as well. And he talked, he preached to the poor about being content. And mm -hmm. uh, sometimes um, in our engagement with, with the poor, even in our community, it will be interesting to see people that are, impoverished and even homeless that will receive some resources and really misuse them and, you know, not pay rent or not uh, get yeah. food, but to use money. And he, he confronted that as well. So, but he was an equal opportunity prophet uh, when it came to 
uh, the subject of poverty. But um, but I think I mean the sim- the simple thing is is every Christian and every church must have a place in their life of of caring for the poor. Um, right. we, we need to be praying for the poor. And, you know, obviously when we pull up to a stoplight and people have a sign or are asking for food, um, we don't always know what the best thing is. And in fact, um, one of the pastors on the staff at our church just sent out a note about, uh, we, we, we're in a downtown church where we have uh, homeless people joining us for worship, which is wonderful. Uh, but it was just a reminder about best practices in, basically it's just don't hand people money because- mm-hmm. They, they have protocols and things in place, kind of a long-term plan for that. Um, but I think, I think with the white, with the white American suburban church, we can live insulated uh, from the poor. Um, you know, suburb, suburbs were structured to keep people out. Um, mm-hmm. Cities are much more uh, inclusive. Um, and so I think, I think going back to Basel again, even with his relationship with the government and with the social needs, he was engaged with his culture. Um, mm-hmm. He was present. And as he thought about the gospel in the real needs of the social problems and what was going on, um, he was not, um, you know, hiding back in the suburbs. He was he was a monk and a bishop living in the middle of the city. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think your your point on that he preached to not just the rich, but also the poor was was really good so um first is the poor sometimes miss misuse what they get and i actually think that's one thing today that people um that's one reason they use to not give because if they see someone they're like why would i give them money they're probably just going to use it on drugs or something Mm -hmm. right that that is that is a real issue and then also preaching to the rich and Mm -hmm. saying god loves a cheerful giver Mm -hmm. right um so before we move on from uh, Basel to St. Patrick, actually, there, there is one more thing. You've talked multiple times about the idea of prophetic discourse or the prophetic voice. Um, could you expand on that a little bit more and specifically how people can use that in missions um, and the essential role of it? Yeah, well, um, some people are more bent toward being prophets. They see something that's not right that's unjust and they speak up about it. These are the people that stir things up. And, and I think God has wired people with that. I think um, when I take spiritual gifts test, I I tend to be wired that way. And when I see something that's unjust or wrong, um, it's hard not to want to say or do something about it. Um, I think, um, you know, there, there is, we live in a fallen world where people oppress and, and there is, there is injustice. And mm-hmm. so uh, Arthur Glasser, who wrote a book called Announcing the Kingdom, it's a theology of mission. He said, you know, we announce the kingdom of God, but we also denounce the kingdoms of this world. Uh, mm-hmm. We denounce uh, predatory lending or, um, uh, you know, how some people are uh, not allowed a, a home loan because of their background. There, there is, there, there's injustice, um, especially toward historically toward African Americans and, and home ownership. Uh, this is documented, um, and uh, and so um, 
So it's bringing the gospel to bear to, you know, we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. But there's also a, a measure of, of acting in kingdom ways um, mm-hmm. and to speak out and to say this is not right. And so, sure. uh, you know, when my kids are, you know, I correct my kids, I, I speak up. Um, they, they love that. Um, but even too, um, I mean, when Nathan came to David, uh, the prophet, and he said, you are the one that has stolen someone's wife. You are acting uh, wrongly. Mm-hmm. That took a lot of courage. Um, and um, um, we, a recent president um, and our uh, a recent historic president was likened to the King Cyrus. And people were like, he's Cyrus, God's using him. Um, but one author said, where is King Cyrus's prophet Nathan? You know, if someone is raised up and used for God's purposes, where is God's prophet to speak um, into in, into their life as well? And so, sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it just generally means uh, in our communities, uh, in even in the political sphere, uh, that we denounce injustice and 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 we work against injustice. And so, um, so just yeah. that. Yeah, I'm struck by, I think the, the word that comes to mind to me now is, is balance when I think about Basel, mm-hmm. um, a man of great balance in a lot of his work. He's both, lots of people don't have lots of theological rigor or philosophical rigor. And they'll just say something like, well, doctrine doesn't matter all that much. Let's just love Jesus and love people. That's a big thing. At the same time, um, many people either fall into one end of the ditch with the rich and poor dilemma. They'll either say, well, the rich uh, are bad and we need to just care for the poor. And then they end up basically catering to sin mm-hmm. in, in light of that. And then on the opposite end, you can have um, people who who don't give it all. So Basil, somebody that, or Basil, somebody that is a great, balance of a lot of those things. Um, so now kind of moving into the next guy, Mr. Patrick, St. Patrick of Ireland. So again, this is one where we have so many thoughts about St. Patrick's day and, Mm -hmm. uh, shamrocks and just like (laughs) random unrelated things to, um, this particular individual and so much interesting history behind him. Talk a little bit about who is Patrick. What is St. Patrick's Day, I guess? Why, why do we celebrate that? Mm-hmm. Um, who is he? And why did you write about him? Yeah, sure. Um, well, St. Patrick's Day, that's March the 17th. That's his feast day on the church calendar. So in the in the Roman Catholic and, and um, Orthodox tradition, but also uh, in the Anglican tradition, there are days on the calendar. So actually today, uh, Mary Magdalene is remembered on the church calendar as a saint. Mm. And... Um, and that was a tool, a device in the early church to rem- to safeguard the memory of those that that followed the Lord. They're they're not more saints than any other believer, but they're people um, who um, who embodied faith, and we want to emulate their faith. So mm-hmm. sermons were preached on their feast days. Um, you know, biographies were written about them, uh, and so that's that's why we get. Um, you know, St. Patrick's Day. Um, so um, did St. Patrick envision the Chicago River being turned green? Or I was in Times Square uh, the last March 17th and uh, people were having a good time, um, but I don't know if they were thinking so much about the life of St. Patrick. 
Um, But, um, you know, uh, St. Patrick was a slave. um, So he um, actually grew up in a Christian home. His father was a deacon in the church, his grandfather a priest. And so this would have been in the the British Roman church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and there were, um, there was a, a, an Irish band that came and, and, um, and, uh, attacked his village and took a lot of people off into slavery. So from the time he was 16 to 22, he was a slave working with sheep and possibly pigs. Um, and so taken to Ireland. So, so St. Patrick wasn't Irish. He was mm-hmm. British. Um, he learned Irish language and culture. Um, but one of the things that he tells us in his confessions is he had visions. And so when he's 22 years old, he has a, vi- has a vision from God uh, to escape. And so he does, he, he runs away, uh, gets on board a boat and, and, and ultimately gets back home. And so mm-hmm. his family's delighted that he's home, but then he has another vision uh, that he tells us that it's the voice of the Irish calling him to come back. And, um, and that's really, that's really something when you think about it, the people that enslaved Mm -hmm. me, the people that took six years of my life away, uh, now God is calling me back to preach good news to them. Um, and his family flipped, they weren't happy with it. His good Christian family didn't want him to do that, but he would go and apprentice, um, in the church, either in Gaul, which is now France or part of Britain. Uh, and then ultimately the Bishop of Rome would send him out as a missionary bishop to, um, to the Irish. Uh, there was mm-hmm. that Patrick talks about the ends of the earth that Ireland right. then was literally the ends of the known earth. Um, he believed he was living in the last days and, and, uh, Patrick is one of the very few in the early church that, 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 um, quotes Matthew 28 to go and make yeah. disciples of all peoples. That doesn't become a real missionary text until the 18th century. Right. Uh, and so, um, so again, Ireland is a, is a tribal society. There were, there were no towns, there were no cities. Um, and it's going to be a, um, you know, also a turbulent place. The fact that he lived there for six years as a slave, that was his cultural orientation. Mm-hmm. Um, and he will, he will go and he will, um, uh, find favor with tribal leaders and, and local, local leaders, and will gain permission to preach the gospel. And that's, that sets a pattern for many other missionary monks after him, where they give them permission. Uh, his first, his first stop is at the, at the place of leadership and power. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so he will go on preaching missions, uh, throughout his life, about 30 years, he will uh, it's believed that as many as a hundred thousand Irish believed through his wow. preaching, and some two hundred new churches were started, um, and that's going to become the foundation for the for evangelizing the rest of Europe because it's the next generation of Irish monks uh, from mm-hmm. the sixth to the ninth century that will evangelize a lot of the rest of Europe. Wow, yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, the impact that one man can have in the way God can use him. Um, and just the ripple effects from somebody's ministry and just faithful service is very inspiring. Uh, talk a little bit about the, uh, just his context of living in among the Celtic peoples. What were they like? Um, what were the Celts like, uh, what was living in that place in that time 
like for him? Yeah, obviously the, the main form of worship was Druid worship, which, which is a general animism. And so yeah. um, uh, Patrick engaged with the Druids. There was some uh, Christianity before he got there. There's some, there are some theories about others who may have come. And so he did come into contact with tribes that were, that were already influenced by the gospel. Um, but I think part of the, the social organization of Ireland at the time was tribal, and he understood that. That's why he engaged with leaders. Um, he actually would often, uh, you know, often the son of a, of a tribal leader would, would, would travel with him and pr provide protection along yeah. the roads. And I use that word um, in a limited sphere, uh, way. This is not paved interstates, but paths. Um, so the interesting thing is that by starting churches and monasteries alongside churches, um, <clears throat> Patrick, <clears throat> excuse me, Patrick's work actually helps to provide uh, renewed social structures for Ireland, for, uh, for towns, uh, for working rhythms and, and all of that. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was a turbulent, dangerous place to live. So, yeah. If you were to describe, if you were to guess, obviously we don't know, but what would a day in the life of the monk St. Patrick look like as he's in Ireland? Yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he doesn't tell us as much about what his day would have been like. We don't, it's not until, you know, St. Benedict that we have more of a rule, um, you know, or, um, or even St. Augustine where we get a, a sense of how the day was structured, but certainly there would have been uh, time in the day for prayer, um, for, for group prayer, um, for what we might call small services uh, they'll late, later be called the, the hours or the offices of prayer. We don't have a sense of the structure there, but uh, but there was certainly, um, uh, you know, time for daily worship, probably a daily uh, Eucharist or Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, um, you know, certainly the work of preaching in the church context. Um, and then, um, and, but a lot of travel, uh, it, the I think the historical evidence shows us that Patrick was all over the Irish island uh, preaching uh, and based on the churches that were started by the end right. of his life. Right. Uh, you talk about how in, in your chapter on him, you talk about how he was able to work with others and able to work in teams and uh, utilize other, empower others in, into leadership uh, to help him in his missionary efforts. Talk, could you talk about that as well? Yeah, again, we don't we don't know as much, but simply, I think, just to mirror back what you've said, um, the, the the communal monastic monastic community there um, also becomes the missionary team, and so as right. they're committed to prayer and work, this work that they're doing, um, they they do it together collaboratively. Um, one thing about monastic life is, yes, he was. He doesn't use a lot of terms like monastic abbot and other things like that. He doesn't call himself that, but uh, but monasticism, going back to the influence of Pacomius in Egypt, um, you would have someone that was the leader of the community, but also a member of the community. So it was what we might call today servant leadership. Uh, definitely sure. he had the authority as an abbot, um, but he also submitted to authority. Um, mm -hmm. But I think... Um, 
one of the interesting things is he in in setting apart new churches and monasteries um, he did set apart leaders and and abbots so they actually didn't follow an ecclesiastical structure of church leadership with bishops, priests, and deacons. They used a monastic structure uh, to right. structure the churches as well in Ireland. So interesting. That, that's unique, but it also does just support the idea that that he did set apart new leaders. So, yeah, and even with that kind of unique uh, church structure, he still viewed um, something like baptism and church membership as essential in his mission work. Um, So he talks, you have a quote in here of Patrick could not have conceived of an unbaptized Christian or a church less Christianity. So it's not just this rogue, like way out in the sticks doing stuff on his own without any sort of structure or sense of God's church. Um, He's still wanting people to like viewing it as essential that people are involved in the, in the body of Christ. Um, So that's very interesting. Another uh, big theme throughout many of these monks and with Patrick as well, and because he was a slave himself, is this denunciation of slavery um, and sort of a, a fight for that to end. And it seems like like Christian missionary monks seem to be sort of the forerunners to a lot of the abolition of slavery later. And it doesn't come until much later, until um, slavery kind of ends in the known world, at least um, in the context of what we usually think of as slavery. Um, so talk a little bit about sort of this theme of, of monks and slavery and, and Patrick and how he maybe preached against that in his day. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, his own six years in slavery and we do need to make a distinction what Patrick experienced. He, he definitely was not free. Uh, but I, but I, we want to be careful not to um, liken his experience to the chattel slavery of the 16th to 18th centuries, which was just, the most horrific um, type of slavery the world has known. So he was definitely a servant who was not free um, Mm. to where he had to escape. Sure. Um, So yeah, definitely he was sensitive to that. Um, You know, in Patrick's day, about one fourth of the world's population were enslaved peoples. Um, So certainly, um, you know, the scriptures talk about uh, the, you know, Paul's letter to Philemon, uh, it deals with slavery. And I think, I think we do see the seeds of thinking of 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 what it means to be a, a bearer of God's image, and uh, how people ought to be treated, and what does it mean to be a member of of you know the body of Christ. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, monks will find actually going into even like uh, Gregory the Great, um, um, you know Ansgar of Corby. There were others. They there were monasteries that actually went and purchased. Um, children out of slavery and mm-hmm. took them into the monastery and raised them and educated them. Wow. And even some of them came to be missionary monks themselves. And so, mm-hmm. um, so I think the monastic structure provided um, a way for, uh, for monks to confront the problem. But yeah, we, we see, um, you know, in Patrick's um, letter to the soldiers of Caroticus, uh, there's really a uh, a denunciation of, of slavery and oppressing people, um, mm. very, very strong words toward this Irish king about, you know, how we treat other humans who bear God's image. Right. That's very good. Uh, one last thing before we move on to the next guy. Um, talk about how, uh, and this could be broader than just St. Patrick, but just in general, the way that monks often had to contextualize the gospel to people who were, um, 
maybe Celtic Druids, or mm-hmm. maybe or just people who had no no context or no language to even think about um, some of the things in the Bible um, and how that even applies to us today. So how do you contextualize the gospel to Druids who are worshiping animals and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think my my better answer comes actually from a, a little late, later period in the, in the work of St. Columba, who um, went to the Pictish people in Scotland. So he would have come from Northern Ireland over. Um, and what, what I think is a really brilliant model from them that they did is the Pictish people. That's where we get the word picture from. They were artists. So they were stone artists and book artists and um, silver artists. And so hmm. um, so as the gospel came into Pictland in, in, in the Scottish Highlands, um, the stone monuments that they used to use to to worship their gods and to record their history um that's where we get the idea of the big celtic crosses that so what it is is it's a transformed piece of material culture of artwork Mm -hmm. from the pictish people but redeemed for god's usage and so so as the picts came to christ they thought you know we can still be artists but let's use our stone art to publicly display the cross and when we see the cross, we see obviously a visual symbol and a reminder of our of, of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, over time, um, it used to be on the Celtic crosses, there were like images of animals and snakes and other things that you would see from that part of the yeah. world. Those start to be scrubbed off um, mm. and are replaced with Bible stories. And so okay. a lot of the early Celtic crosses, because um, people weren't literate, um, it was kind of a precursor to stained glass in cathedral windows where, yeah. you know, there would be um, uh, visual Bible stories um, in the cross. And so so I think I think, um, you know, what the what the Celts, what like St. Columba and others do is that they basically are students of the culture that they've gone to mm-hmm. and they take their buildings. Uh, this is something we see happen in England. They transform existing buildings. They transform existing art forms into means of, of glorifying God. And so, um, so local culture is not being destroyed and annihilated, and the hard drive wiped clean, so to speak, and and, right. and putting something else in its place. Uh, it's redeeming what's there because there is a sense that that this culture still bears God's image, and and their art forms can be used. So, right. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Yeah. And with contextualizing <clears throat> Christianity, we'll we'll see it a little bit later when we get to Ansgar, but um I actually do think that's a good reminder that when when we are preaching the, the gospel to people, especially of a different culture, we don't have to require them to change every single thing about themselves. So they can keep some of <clears throat> their identity. So like how the Celtic people still did their type of art, um, but they did it for God, which yeah. is which is great. Yeah, and as when we when we get to the next people that we're talking about, it's actually two people. It's Gregory the Great and Augustine, so two huge figures in uh, in church history. And so yeah. to start off on their uh, on the study of their missions, uh, would you please speak to? who they are and what, what their context was. Cause yeah. all of these monks have uh, specific issues they're dealing with or uh, a specific goal in their mission that they're trying to do. So what, 
what is Augustine and Gregory doing and working with? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, St. Gregory or the Gregory the Great, sometimes called Pope, Pope Gregory. <clears throat> um, he was the first monk to ever become the Bishop of Rome. And so um, um, he had been, um, he'd actually worked in the uh, Roman um, administration. Uh, and so he lived in the sixth century in Rome with with many problems. And even uh, the Lombard kingdom was threatening Rome and 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 later did come in and, and, and you know, and attack uh, the city of Rome. Um, Gregory was a deacon in the church. And so a lot of the time their deacons were, you know, with charged with dealing with the poor. And, and so, so there were real social problems in the city of Rome and that, that was where he served. Um, he will become, uh, um, Gregory will become a monk following in the um, order of St. Benedict. And so he'll mm -hmm. live, um, live in a monastery and be the abbot of a monastery. And then he's going to be called from that to become the Bishop of Rome, which um, I think he was a little bummed about that. He was living a nice monastic life. And, you know, of course he was a theologian as well, a pastoral theologian. Um, but there's a, um, there's a story. And of course, uh, let me just say something about St. Augustine of Canterbury. Um, sometimes th that name Augustine is famous. We're not talking about Augustine of Hippo from mm. North Africa, uh, but a lesser known figure um, um, who was the ab once um, Gregory became the Bishop of Rome, um, St. Augustine became the abbot of the, the, the monastery of Monte Cassino about, it's about an hour outside of Rome up in the mountains. Um, um, I was there about two weeks ago and got to tour. Mm. It was really cool. Um, but, um, uh, but there's a story um, and, it, and, and no one really believes this is a true story, but there's a story that when, that when, uh, Gregory was living in Rome um, and as a monk and living there, he would walk through the slave markets. So people are, you know, selling their goods at the market, uh, vegetables, food, other things, but they're also selling people. And he would see these uh, blue eyed boys and he asked the question, you know, who, who are they? And they said, well, these are the Angli or the English, uh, the Anglo-Saxons. Mm. And, um, and there's a, there's a, statement attributed to Gregory, oh, if the Angeli could on, only become Angeli, if the if the English could only become angels, it was a play on words, if the English people could be saved. Um, and so at that time, we've already mentioned that St. Patrick was Romano-British, uh, and the British people or the Breton people were a dif different ethnic group than the Anglo or Anglo-Saxons, and they did not get along. Uh, the Anglo-Saxons mm -hmm. oppressed the British, and so as we look at the spread of the gospel in the Roman Empire, this is, this is almost the year 600. There's real, really no church or uh, gospel movement among the English by this time. The British had had the gospel for a couple hundred years, but they had yeah. not shared with their neighbors. And um, so no one really believes that this story about Pope Gregory seeing the, the slaves is true. Mm -hmm. for the fact that he also purchased slave boys out of slavery, brought them into the monastery, educated them. And so there is some theory, and I would, I would follow this theory, that he learned more about um, Anglo-Saxon culture, uh, perhaps even learned some of their language, um, got more of a vision for them. But all that to say, 
Gregory, one of the first things he did after becoming Pope, where he had the power as the leader of the church in the Western world, is he got his friend, the abbot of Monte Cassino, who was, you know, pretty busy leading that monastery, and he sent him with 40 monks to England. Um, mm. And so this was the mission to the English. Um, uh, it was to walk from, to, to walk across land from what's from, from Italy up through Germany, across France, crossing the water into Canterbury in England. Um, that was a long <clears throat> treacherous journey. Um, at one point, um, uh, Augustine comes back and says it can't be done. Hmm. And Gregory and his good pastoral leadership said, it must be done. This is a one-way, this is a one-way ticket, a one-way journey. There's no coming back but I'm going to support you in this. And he wrote, Gregory wrote oh. letters to the Kings in Gaul and got safe passage. He gave pastoral leadership. There were some 18 pastoral letters exchanged between Gregory and Augustine. And so, so when I write about this, yes, Augustine took the monks to England um, and you know what? God bless them. They, they, they made contact with the King there, uh, King Ethelbert who initially didn't believe, but gave them freedom to preach the gospel. Um, eventually he does believe. <clears throat> and that's at Canterbury, that's the beginning of the English church. And so even wow. today, the archbishop, uh, the leader of the Church of England is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, right. But the interesting thing is Gregory was really the sender. He had energy behind it. He had the vision for it. Um, I don't think this mission would have happened if it were just Augustine of Canterbury alone doing this. So, um, so it's a, it's a phenomenal, um, quite a phenomenon in history of really it's the strength of the sender that, that follows this mission through. So. Yeah. Yeah. And when it, when it comes to Gregory the great and, um, him being the first uh, monk that was a Pope, I, I thought of a, couple of things actually. So uh, the story about him and the slave boys, whether it's true or not, one thing that struck me when I read that is specifically for Protestants, when we when we hear the word Pope, we can kind of get set back. Um, so the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, a lot of the times in, in the past, the, the popes were the ones sending. Uh, I think the reformers, they even admitted at certain points good has come from the papacy um so I th so i think that's one thing protestants can take in mind from this but also it was just gregory the great and his compassion so he he really was a strong sender so could you speak to the idea of compassion uh the role that plays in uh sending people on missions or um evangelizing the world and specifically how it played a role for someone like Gregory the Great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I think you've said it well. Um, I, I would go back again to his uh, to his background of being a deacon in the Church of Rome and seeing firsthand uh, poverty and problems. And um, you know, Rome was about to fall. Um, and during during his lifetime, I mean, Rome had already been attacked. Um, in the year hmm. 410 by, by the Visigoths. Um, so the eternal city of Rome, the security there, people were very insecure. Um, and, uh, and he was right in the middle of that. 
Um, so his, his vision for mission wasn't theoretical. Um, uh, but I think too, like when we, when we look at mission history and when we, when we think about what compels people, um, you know, I mean, what compels people to, to go, to send, to sacrifice, to think about people who don't have the gospel, there is, there is vision, there is passion there. And, mm-hmm. and often it takes a really strong figure like Gregory the Great um, to to make it follow through. Um, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I had another thought, but it, it, it left me there. But I, I think, yeah. um, um, you know, that you, you sometimes hear the hear the quotation that all things are all things are created twice. Um, it's the people with a vision that, that this burden keeps them up at night and they're like, you know, when it's going to happen, uh, any, and even, you know, even the invitation to suffering, um, even for Gregory to say, to be pastoral on one hand to Augustine of Canterbury, but to say, you know, coming back is not an option. And I, I often think about that today, you know, when we think about our churches sending out missionaries or organizations and if people are having a very difficult time in cross-cultural ministry they often can be reassigned or or they can come back um and i once put this out to it was at a missions conference and imagine that you sent out missionaries and they said i'm i'm we want to come back this is too hard and you're like nope you can't um you know, that that was a different a world and different time. And also, too, um, going back to something we said earlier, you know, St. Uh, Augustine of Canterbury was under the authority of the Pope. There was spiritual authority there. There's obedience there. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that we, we, we live in a bit of a different world here with more personal autonomy. And yeah. things. I mean, I, I think that is one of the one of the one of the real hallmarks of a, of monasticism is obedience to the abbot, and and in this case, obedience. The the monasteries always come under church leadership as well. So there's obedience and accountability. Yeah, yeah, and there there is this resounding theme of obedience and specifically perseverance and encouragement and and all of those things working together. Um, so when when you tell the story of like Augustine came back and then. Uh, I believe Gregory sent a letter saying hey, you must obey, like you need to follow the church. Uh, and then also what you said about how you were, I think you were at a conference and you said, imagine that you said, no, like you can't come back. Uh, so today we obviously do see people get reassigned or kind of uh, give up or, or something like that. What, so what do you think we can learn about this idea of obedience, encouragement, and perseverance? So why, why do you think some people maybe don't want to obey today or maybe don't want to persevere or keep going or kind of give up? And what struggles do you think we deal with specifically today as Christians when it comes to going out and yeah. having this mission and not giving up? Yeah, well, one of the things about monastic life is that it was – they. It, by following a monastic call, they were embracing suffering and hardship in one way of, of just the way they live their lives, um, getting up at four in the morning for prayer and days of fasting. Um, they, they really denied themselves. Um, 
And so monks were built to suffer. And I think because of the resilience built up <clears throat> in the daily habits of monastic living, they, they were resilient. Um, mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that obedience is part of monasticism as well. And that culturally, e even for people involved in ministry, um, it, it's, it's just not the same thing. Um, so I, <clears throat> I, I have a boss, I have a couple bosses, but I also have people that work for me. And when I think about the relationship, my working relationships, I, I don't really think of it as that, you know, how, uh, how Augustine was with, with Gregory, that, that, that obedience there. Um, I'm not saying, and I, and I don't want to, um, romanticize. I'm not saying that Gregory and Augustine were necessarily right. Um, I don't think, um, you know, I don't think that, um, that if, if people are dealing with, let's say, uh, mental health issues or even health issues in ministry, um, I'm not saying resilience to the point of abusing someone where they just totally burn out. We, we certainly have seen that in history. There's certainly a, a place for pastoral care and and all of that. I mean, Hudson Taylor, um, after mm -hmm. one term in China, came back very sick and spent about six, seven years back in England. Um, uh, not, not that long, a few years in England, um, you know, recovering. And so, um, so I, you know, uh, it gives us a point to think about what, and I think the question is, what is, what is healthy, godly resilience? Um, and even just, um, you know, uh, for let, let's say pastors dealing with a really hard situation in a church. Um, I think in America, uh, someone said that usually a, uh, the average pastor that quits um, is usually dealing with about seven problems in a church situation, and um, and of course some of these problems are big. But but when when do you leave and go do other things? And so um, I, I don't I'm not claiming to have answers, but I think it does uh, does raise the question: How is our resilience, and uh, do we um, do we give up easily? Do we quit? Um, do we get called someplace else? Um, you know, when things are hard. Um, so that's yeah, give us yeah. a lot to think about. Yeah, we should definitely um, question or at least think about or contemplate uh, how much resilience we should have. And so uh, you're right, it can be taken too far in either direction. We could give up way too easily, but also you might go way too hard and just burn out. And neither, neither is good. We do have to find. Uh, that balance, uh, kind of like what we talked about earlier, we should have a balanced Christian life. One yeah. that, like Basil, or yeah, Basil, he he showed us. And um, let me just add, yeah. let me just add too that that in in the Benedictine, the rule of Saint Benedict, and the Benedictine monasticism, one of their values was stability um, and steadiness. Hmm. And so, part of their 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 life of prayer their life of work their daily rhythms their annual rhythms um was to cultivate stability in the christian life and mm -hmm. uh, that's a really good thing because I've, yeah. I've i've watched people go great guns in ministry and burn out and just uh and not have stability and steadiness and a mm -hmm. lifetime of ministry and I, I think i think the benedictine uh, focus has a lot to teach us. Yeah. The, uh, the stability and habits, we're, we're creatures of habit. 
uh, for our spiritual disciplines can definitely help with our resilience in these mm-hmm. in these matters. So I yeah I didn't know that about the uh, Benedictine uh, monasteries, but that's a that's interesting. Um, so one more thing before we move on to Anscar, actually, and this is kind of uh, a different topic than o- obedience and perseverance and encouragement, but it's getting back a little bit to contextualizing Christianity with this. So before we go into Anscar and also talking about Augustine and Gregory, um, we are we already mentioned <clears throat> contextualizing Christianity. But what I would like to ask you is how how does that uh, how do people take it too far or maybe not go far enough with it? Because um, obviously there's extremes to that. So someone can contextualize Christianity too much uh maybe where it gets blurred but then some people might not do it at all and there are problems with that so what do you what do you think about that well um i like what andrew walls said he's a historian of christianity and and mission um and a theologian he he said that that the gospel should be at home in every culture and the gospel is a pilgrim message to every culture so uh because cultures bear God's image. Um, There are connecting points, like we talked about the art of the Celts and the art of the Picts uh, was a good connecting point. But there's never a culture where where people come to and say, you know, you guys are just so righteous. You don't even need the cross. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's always a place. There are always sinful aspects of, of a collective culture, of a culture in people's lives. And I think that's where, as we read scripture with people in their context, and as the spirit convicts that, um, that transformation, uh, begins to happen. Um, um, I think with, in terms of, you know, it's interesting going back to Gregory and Augustine, one of the, one of the questions Augustine asked Gregory is, um, you know, there are some really well-built pagan temples here in England. Um, should we tear them down? and build churches and places of worship or could we um um flip them could we uh you know repurpose them and gregory wrote and said well first of all that the temple should be cleansed of idols mm-hmm. uh, the objects of worship should be taken out but if it's a good building that's well made then by all means use that um mm-hmm. and those houses of worship let it be a transitional step let it be a place where people are used to going um and um and so if if you look at um if you go around the ancient world and look at excavated churches the more you dig underneath a lot of times there's a pagan temple there um Mm -hmm. that's true in rome that's true in uh i used to live in tunisia Uh, a lot of the excavated uh, basilicas were were built uh, with the bones and the structures of pagan temples. Um, and we think, uh, and, and if we fast forward to our time, we're like, sure, we use movie theaters and start churches there. You know, people are watching an R-rated movie the night before, but we have church here on Sunday morning. You know, yeah. we're, we're good with repurposing. Are we, you know, I've, I've, I helped start some churches that met in like school cafeterias and auditoriums. It's a, you know, this, this is really strategic. Um, and the only problem is, is that, um, you know, we have five mosques in my city. Um, if all of the people in the mosque suddenly came to Christ and we just said, well, let's just take all the images of the Quran and, 
and Islam out of here, and let's just use this for church now, um, that becomes uh, transitioning sacred space is a, is a tricky thing. And so I think the jury is still out on whether Gregory was right to say that. I will say that a later English monk who went to northern Germany, Boniface, when he got to Germany, he destroyed all uh, of sacred space and built new churches. Hmm. Uh, and I think from his English background, I think that he was concerned with syncretism or mixing. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a tricky thing, um, you know, yeah. and I think I think it's a dialogue that we need to have. So sometimes when I have a class with international students and we're talking about uh, contextualization, and I'll give this historic example of, of Gregory and Augustine, and I'm like, okay, in Thailand, in a Buddhist temple, could we just transform that into a, a church? And usually, like my Asian students are like, no, never. There were too many demonic, uh, anti-Christian things that are going on in that space. Yeah. There are, you know, shrine prostitutes and temple prostitutes. There's just it, it, it can't be redeemed. We need to do something else. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, yeah. it, it, it's, uh, um, I, I think, I think that every context one needs to dialogue and reflect on scripture and talk with local believers, um, about, about all of that. Yeah. So now kind of moving into this kind of dovetails well into Anscar and his work in Scandinavia and whatnot. Um, but I'm kind of reminded of, uh, seeing this, I think it's in South Dakota. There's a church that's modeled after, I can't remember the the type of church it is, Stave Church, I think. I think it's the Stave Churches okay. um, that are basically very Scandinavian looking buildings. Oh, yeah, sure. And um, and so in South Dakota, I think there's a modeled Lutheran church, actually, that yeah. is a stave, a stave church. And yeah. it has these images of like dragons and very... Um, uh, very Nordic mythology is kind of mixed in there a little bit. Yeah. Um, and someone could see that as syncretistic at the same time. It's also what you would expect to see as Vikings are <laughs> these barbarian dudes are coming to Christ. Um, and I, I just find it fascinating and finding the right balance there is, is fascinating as well. Um, so kind of tweaking the, the bad things in the culture, but then when they're redeemed, they're fantastic. So like, oh, if you could just evangelize the English, like Gregory was talking about, if you could evangelize these huge barbarian Scandinavian people that are these warriors, what could they do? Well, they could go and build kingdoms. They could go build cities for, for God's kingdom. So I find that all fascinating. So as we kind of move into Ansgar, as, uh, what is his missionary context as well? Uh, who is he and where is he doing his work? Yeah, Ansgar is fascinating. He is Frankish, or what would be the, the the seeds of the French people. So he lived in 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 the Frankish Empire and was the leader of a monastery in a place called Corby. Um, and it's a very interesting thing. Uh, there was a, a, a Danish king named Harald who had been expelled from his kingdom, um, and King Harald went to the Frankish king. I forget which name, but but those are the um, Ultimately, um, you're going to have Charlemagne. Uh, it was it was Charlemagne's grandfather, um, mm. whose name I'm blanking on right now. It's in the book, uh, but he was a king pink king of the Franks um, who received Harald, and Harald was wanting to get back his empire. Um, Harald had been baptized uh, by the Franks, 
and he basically said to the Frankish king, send me a Christian teacher. I want to go back and, and, and bring Christianity to my people in Denmark. Mm -hmm. um, and it turned out pretty quickly. Uh, anyway, the, the, this is uh, something that we're going to see happen more and more where it's not a pope or a bishop sending a missionary, but it's a king or an emperor. And so uh, later, like when um, Cyril and Methodius go to the Slavic peoples in the ninth century, it's actually the Eastern emperor, the Byzantine emperor that sends them, not, um, not a patriarch or a bishop. Um, but they reach out to the leader of a monastery who had also been, um, who had uh, uh, liberated uh, slaves and was training, uh, teaching uh, and so forth. And so he was the one that was sent. And so, so he goes with King Harald to Denmark. Um, he finds out very quickly that King Harald is more, he's mixing politics with faith and is really just kind of wanting to make a military alliance with the Frankish to hmm. get his uh, throne back. Uh, that's very short-lived. Um, but while, so the mission is a bust and King Harald ended up becoming a pirate and, and sailed the, um, you know, the seas, they are plundering places just like the Vikings uh, were doing. Um, but King, uh, but, um, but Ansgar will make contact with uh, the Swedish King Bjorn, who says, come basically to what is now Sweden. And he goes there and, um, and preaches the gospel. One thing along the way is that Ansgar will experience shipwreck. And so they will be attacked by pirates. Um, again, this is a theme that we're seeing among the missionary monks is that they served in places of danger um, and they suffered hardship. Um, but he will go and they will, um, you know, they will plant initial churches in Sweden. Um, later, um, Ansgar was not only, not only, you know, a monastic leader, uh, but he was quite a good administrator. And so he is set apart as the bishop of, of Hamburg and Bremen, which is now in northern Germany. Uh, and he will kind of be a sender of missionaries from that place into Scandinavia, in, back into Denmark, back into what is now Sweden. Hmm. He will continue to go himself. But sadly, in the year 845, the Vikings will attack Hamburg Bremen and will, um, you know, will burn the church and monastery to the ground. And so, um, so it's, um, you know, it's a ministry in hardship. Um there's some debate in terms of, of the fruitfulness of Ansgar's mission. The traditional view is that uh, very few believe because of his work. Uh, that's been challenged where more of Christianity did go into, um, in, in, mm -hmm. into Scandinavia. But we see during the years that he's living, this is kind of the end, the beginning of the end of, um, of, of Viking violence. And the Vikings mm -hmm. are going to settle down. And uh, and we're going to see Christianity come into Scandinavia. So, yeah, yeah, yeah this is a an, an like just a particular interesting area to me of like the the Christianization of that area because it seems like um, there isn't a lot of information and we just don't know that much about all of that and how that all happened. Um, I'm recalling so uh, we me and Samuel are big fans of uh, Gavin Ortland. He's a uh, um, church historian and pastor and, and, and guy that has a YouTube channel. And he made a video about, about this sort of stuff. Uh, he talked about how there's basically this one 
I think you cite him as well, this one historian that basically has, uh, I think it's Adam of Bremen. Is uh -huh. that his name? Mm -hmm. And he's like one of the only sources we really have for a lot oh. of this stuff, which right. is just fascinating. Um, Ansgar, another guy who has dreams and visions mm -hmm. as something that calls him into ministry. So mm -hmm. <laughs> we talk a, a bit about a bit more about that and why why is that a theme, do you think? And why um, just what's the story with him and, and visions? Yeah, I mean, you, you'll see this. Obviously, we mentioned this already with Patrick. Um, I don't think we see it with every one. We are, you know, we are getting into late antiquity here. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, um, there's no necessary spiritual claim uh, to this, but I, I think some of the it, it's it's a bit reminiscent of Paul having visions to come and to go. Um, uh, you know, perhaps maybe um, I'm, I'm just speculating here because of the treachery of of the work and the difficulty of the work. Uh, perhaps this this was a way that um, that God used to, to motivate Ansgar to to press on um, mm -hmm. in hard areas. But um, however we theologize it, it's there. Uh, however, we uh, on this side of the Enlightenment, we might think, um, you know, yeah what's going on here. Um, but yeah, even, um, even claims of, of, of dreams and visions and even the miraculous, uh, goes well into the medieval period. So. Yeah. <laughs> right. I was, I was going to say that in our kind of modernist context, the way that I think about when I, if I, if somebody told me I had a dream, I'm going to go evangelize to these people. I would immediately think that they're crazy. Probably I would have to actually work to, uh, try to work off what is actually my own context and me being a modern person, quote unquote, an educated, you know, sophisticated person for, versus believing in the supernatural as a Christian. Yeah. Um, and so that's very interesting to me. Yeah. Well, I will yeah. just say, I will just say that, you know, um, I, I lived in the Muslim world and a, a, a high percentage of believers that came to Christ, this was on their journey to faith, yeah. um, talked about having dreams of Christ and right. so it's something that is so prevalent um, that, you know, we need to pay attention to it. Um, and even one, um, one radio and media ministry began to keep track of the people that wrote into them and said they'd had dreams of, of, of Christ and so forth. Um, but I like, um, you know, even my, my own wife, when we were headed to North Africa to serve, um, she had, she had a, a, kind of a confirming dream and vision about hmm. um, about the work that we were going to do. And it gave her a lot hmm. of comfort and courage. And even um, one of my, um, uh, you know, one of our adjunct professors um, lived for many years translating the scriptures um, in, uh, in Mexico. Hmm. And he woke up uh, from a dream several months ago about God calling him to go back for a follow-up visit because they had left the field. And so, um, so, uh, you know, maybe we don't talk about it as much, uh, with things, but, uh, or we, or we try to dismiss it or, or rationalize it, but, um, um, hmm. but I, I'm still aware of this, of this kind of thing happening in people I know. Yeah, totally. Yeah. We, uh, yeah, we definitely should be open to the idea of dreams and visions. We should not just completely be closed off. And if someone has one, just say, yep, you're, you're crazy. It was just a picture in your head. That's it. Yeah. Um, 
we we should definitely be open to the Holy Spirit working through that. And I mean, in history, we I mean, even with some of these monks in in the book, we see multiple of them were were called through a dream or a vision, which is uh, which is fascinating. So it is it is part of the Christian reality that we should uh, yeah. be be okay with or come to terms with. Um, an, another thing we see in Ansgar that we actually haven't talked a ton about this uh, this interview is with suffering. Actually, so you've brought up a couple of times that um, monks did have to be open to suffer. So when Pope sent Augustine or when Ansgar went to these violent people, they uh, they had to be open to suffer. And to us, it, in in like a very well developed country, it might seem very foreign to our minds this idea of just embracing suffering. So, can you talk a little bit uh, about that and how? that may actually help us in some ways. Um, or if, again, we could take it too far and just be like maybe too open to suffering. Cause I, I believe wasn't it some of his fellow monks were actually concerned for, mm. for him. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, we don't want to romanticize or dramatize suffering. It's, it's no fun. It hurts. And when we talk about even, um, you know, even in, um, in the scriptures, in let's say First Peter or James, the 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 trials of various kinds. First uh, Peter, it's it's ridicule and it's being um, you know ostracized. Um, certainly, hmm. Paul in Second Corinthians, what eleven, we see that he, he kind of lists a litany of the of the different ways that he has <coughs> that he suffered. Um, you know, suffering is not just going to jail or being beaten or what, um, um, you know, some of the suffering that I've seen of Muslim background believers is, you know, being denied the chance to, to marry someone that they love or to being denied jobs or educational opportunities, um, suffering great uh, discrimination because of their, of their following Christ. And so, yeah, I mean, I think in the West, um, you know, when we where I grew up, as soon as you start to have a headache or something, you you take some, you know, you take something for it. If you if you have pain in your life, emotional pain, physical pain, you you quickly work to try to eradicate that. Um, um, you know, uh, but and and certainly people, um, you know, that are suffering things like cancer or other things like that, they obviously they should you know seek medical attention. God gives us health and blesses us in that. Um, but, you know, again, we look back to the model of Jesus and Jesus in his sacred humanity uh, suffered def deprivation and suffered pain. And we are called to follow Jesus. And so um, so in pastoral ministry, we're going to suffer ridicule and maybe slander. And I was just um, praying through Psalm 56 earlier this morning. And, uh, hmm. and it, it's just about, people that spend their whole day just trying to trip up the king and and make his life miserable and 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 there's going to be that type of hardship i mean the it, it's it shouldn't be um a surprise that uh, in the lord's prayer embedded there is lord deliver us from evil deliver us from the evil one there's an expectation that there uh, would be that and so so again it, it, i think it's a balance and attention um should we um, seek suffering? I don't think we should seek suffering, but I think when we do experience suffering, uh, 
whether it's through physical health or emotional pain or relational pain, um, mm-hmm. we can certainly ask God, what are, what are you teaching us through this and how, how can you glorify your name? Um, I'm looking at a book on my shelf called God's hostage. Um, uh, a guy named Andrew Brunson, who was, um, taken captive in Turkey. He had been a pastor and missionary there for over 20 years. And then he became a pawn in a political game in Turkey and was imprisoned for over two years uh, for, um, and it was unjust, it was wrong. And he, he really did suffer. Um, you know, when he came out of jail, they, he had to go through a lot of, of, of counseling and care. Uh, it's a real thing. It's no fun. Um, uh, mm-hmm. But God has used that suffering to glorify his name. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think of uh, Richard Wormbrand, the book Tortured for Christ, mm-hmm. uh, as the Lutheran minister that, mm-hmm. yeah, the stuff he went through was insane. Um, back to Anskar, he, this uh, theme of social justice was also a big point and theme for him. Um, given that social justice is a, <laughs> uh, a loaded term today, to say the least, uh, what is the proper way to think and view? What can we learn from Ansgar and how do we view social justice if we look through his perspective? Well, again, I think kind of like uh, Gregory the Great and and others, I think that that they were engaged in um, the fabric of society. They were walking the streets. They were seeing what was going on and they were asking really the question, what does it mean for the gospel to be lived out here? And if there, if there's oppression to image bearers, if there is, um, then then that ought to be denounced. And so, um, you know, the 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 things that we we you know we get tripped up on terms like systemic racism or systemic injustice and things like that. Um, I just think that that we read back through the Old Testament prophets. And we ask the question, how, how, how do we apply the scripture in our day? Um, where um, one of the things I think that's a weakness of Western Christianity is we often we look at at spirituality in individual terms and in in just heavenly terms. So mm-hmm. the gospel is me being saved and going to heaven. Um but in in collectivist cultures, let's say in an African context, the gospel is me and my people meeting God um, and the kingdom of God being lived out um, mm-hmm. in eternity. But, but that begins here and now. And, um, and, and, you know, we, we will have in this world, we will have trouble. There will be trials of various kinds. Um, I do think we probably have to choose our battles about mm-hmm. um, what we deal with. Um, right. You know, um, uh, so I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think from mission history and I think from scripture, there's any warrant to say, we just need to focus on individuals and them going to heaven and let's not, let's not mess with, with injustice in our world today. I mean, the, mm-hmm. then we just need to stop reading the old Testament prophets and sure. we need to, we need to stop reading some of the hard sayings of Jesus. Um, and, uh, and we need to just never open Basil of Caesarea and his engagement with political leaders. Um, um, sure. And, and even some of this, you know, uh, what did Peter said, judgment begins in the house of God. And so, so part of that 
some sometimes what we're going to see from some of the monks is they're going to call out church leaders and call them to account. Um, right. And so yeah, kind of a, a theme I see is that there's consistently the Christian message is consistently unfittable into any particular political box. Right. Um, it doesn't it doesn't neatly fit into Republican or Democrat categories. It often will uh, consistently irritate the sensibilities of conservatives and liberals alike. Um, and the streams of injustice that the one obsesses on and the other obsesses on are often both things that need to be addressed by the gospel and need to be refined by the gospel and things like that. So yeah, yeah that, that's something for us to learn. Yeah. Just yeah. like Basil had to address the rich and the poor. Um, mm-hmm. Usually it's both people or both sides of something that need to be addressed in some way. Um, yeah. And when it, so with Ansgar, again, we, we actually see quite a bit of overlap with all the other monks. You, in the book, you actually list, I think, nine things that we could learn from him. And, and a lot of them are, are mentioned in previous, uh, chapters. So like, uh, missions with teams Mm -hmm. or a balance of the contemplative life and the active life. Mm -hmm. And so we, we see a lot of these repeated themes, but what I wanted what I wanted to ask is: Is there anything from Anscar specifically that's unique with this that you would like to add or mention or bring uh, bring up? You know, I, I don't think so. I think he I think he kind of continued his you know the, the 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 details of his story are are different. Um, but uh, I think if I if I could say one thing, Anscar reminds me a little bit of the. Uh, the uh, 18th century missionary David Brainerd, who was Jonathan Edwards' um, almost son-in-law. Um, mm-hmm. Brainerd was engaged to Jonathan Edwards' daughter, and he actually died at the age of 28, 29 in Jonathan Edwards' house. Um, but most of his most of his work was done on a small level. And mm-hmm. I, th- I think one of the things that we can celebrate in Ansgar is that there was faithfulness in small ministry, um, there wasn't, he, he didn't, ha- he didn't see the fruit that St. Patrick saw or that, or, or he didn't serve on the scale, let's say that, that St. Basil served in. Um, but um, most of the people that I know um, um, that have been faithful in ministry, um, they, they've, they've had, if you will, if I could even call this, they've, they've had small places of stewardship, small churches, yeah. small communities, um, they have had their small piece in God's grand puzzle and they've been faithful. And um, I think um, one of the dangers and unfortunately the documentaries right now of the rise and fall of fill in the blank ministry or whatever is yeah. is people that went on a very big brand and they were all, they were great guns. Um, but I, I think the, the real work of, of ministry are, um, are, you know, are faithful pastors and faithful Servants, so people like Ansgar, uh, that uh, I'm I'm actually almost surprised that we remember him uh, because mm. his uh, the fruit of his ministry seemed to be small. So yeah, that's certainly an encouragement to us and uh, something that we should we should seek to draw inspiration from the past. There's you know examples of small small steps of um, faithfulness that lead to big results and small results, and God uses all of it, and we don't see the full picture of it either. Yeah. So before we uh, before we move on to the like the epilogue of of your book, which is the idea of 
kind of adopting somewhat of a monastic theology in some way. Uh, the, the, I was looking back at the questions and I realized there was, there was actually one we missed, which I was uh, really excited to ask you. So, um, and, and here, here it is. It's uh, what, so it, it's actually all the way back with like Basil and the idea that he had theological confrontation. Mm-hmm. What role does theological error or theological disagreement play into missions with all of this? So, um, obviously, throughout all these monks, they they might have believed uh, a couple of different things. I'm sure they would have disagreed on something. Mm-hmm. Does that does that play a role in how missions is mm-hmm. done? Of course. I mean, um, you know, um, a doctor could be compassionate uh, about the sick, but if they don't have the right prescription to heal, then they can do a lot of harm. And if, and if we don't have the gospel, right. Um, then, um, then, then we can, you know, we can teach a false gospel and that's, that, that's what the, that's what Paul's letter to the Galatians was about. Who has bewitched you? O foolish Galatians. You've preached another, you're being, you're, you're being preached another gospel. And so, um, you know, one, I, I don't know if I, I mentioned him, but one of the, interesting uh people in history was a guy named Ophelas who was a Cappadocian Gothic um missionary bishop um who basically ascribed to a form of Arianism he basically uh denied that Jesus was eternal and so um so his Jesus is not a biblical Jesus is not an orthodox Jesus was he sincere in his work and ministry yes um but Mormon missionaries are sincere too. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we need to have the gospel right. And, you know, when we talk about theology, we, we're really talking, I'm talking about the core of the faith. I'm not, I'm not talking about the mode of baptism or should women be pastors or not. Those are, those are I think all would say secondary things. Um, but this is why, you know, a lot of uh, energy was put into refining the creeds in the early church the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Basically, the, 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 those creeds are what should a believer believe so they can be baptized as a believer? What, what, what does it mean to be in the faith, in Christ, what, what, you know, and what is outside of Christ? And so to deny the eternal nature of Christ puts us outside mm-hmm. of the parameters of orthodoxy. Um, and that's important. Um, um, good theology leads to good spiritual practice and spiritual life. And so, um, so uh, you know, I've written about this in other places, but when I, when I look at the work of St. Augustine of Hippo um, in mission, I, I talk about mission to heresy because in the Pelagian and Donatist and Manichaean controversies, his mission field were people that were teaching false teaching and affecting others. I think right. in lots of ways that was Luther and Calvin's mission. Their mission field was the church. And it was it was a mission of of mm. sound and, and uh, healthy doctrine. Right. Um, so um, so you know, one of you said earlier, you know, we can we can say, oh, we don't want to get into theology and all of that, but um, but we can veer off course. And and I'm not talking about being a th- being an academic, I'm not talking about a missionary being an academic theologian, although I think that's admirable and a good thing. Um, but, but you know, I was just reading in Second Timothy uh, two yesterday about 
being a workman available to handle the truth. Uh, because even, even Paul is telling Timothy, people are departing from this good mm-hmm. deposit of, of sound doctrine doesn't sound very, very exciting, but it literally means healthy teaching. It's the, it's the teaching that gives us spiritual life. And, uh, right. and uh, so that, that, that needs to be a, a part of all mission, mission and pastoral training. Right. Yeah. So, so kind of move into moving towards the way you title that blog is toward a monastic theology of missions. Um, so kind of in summary, this is kind of big summarizing thoughts, but how can we move towards a monastic theology of missions? Mm-hmm. What are ways modern Christians can apply the lessons learned from these missionary monks? Yeah, I would refer you to a couple of books. Uh, Dennis Ockham wrote a book called um, Monk Habits for like all Christians. Or it begins with Monk Habits. You can look it up. Mm-hmm. Um, he's an evangelical theologian who spends a lot of time with monks and has written about that. Um, Greg Peters has written a book uh, called The Monkhood of All Believers, um, which is kind of a takeoff on um, on priesthood of all believers, but but kind of recapturing some of this. But I think, um, you know, I, I'm partly um, intrigued by monastic history and monks and practice um, uh, for, for my own interest in spirituality um, because we live in a noisy, busy world and the evangelical church in North America can be a noisy, busy place. And I have been a missionary and served in ministry where I've been so busy with the work of the ministry that it became an idol and, uh, and there wasn't room for contemplation or pulling away. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I think, I think the monastic um, lifestyle um, and the spiritual disciplines that are there, I kind of, I kind of look at that as kind of like going to the gym or 40 minutes of physical exercise every day um, that we need quiet. We need, we need to be praying. We need to be praying the Psalms. We -hmm. need to be meditating on scripture um, so that we can be effectively active uh, about the faith. And so, um, so, um, and even, you know, again, going challenging some stereotypes of monastic living, um, you know, St. Augustine of Hippo's monastery was open to visitors. Um, if you read the rule of St. Benedict, they have a whole chapter on what, what do you do when visitors come to the monastery door? And if they're fasting or praying, they, they actually stop their fasting and praying to prepare food for their visitors. So that ministry to another, that active work actually trumps the contemplative work. They, they don't say, no, we're praying right now, or today we're fasting. Yeah. Um, they put that aside. Um, and so, but I, but I think, um, I think that the church in the West could, could have a good dose of silence, quiet prayer and meditation on scripture. Um, in addition to the good work that we do in ministry. Yeah. I love that. I love mixing the contemplative life with the active life of ministry. I heard, uh, actual Catholic, uh, YouTube channel. I, I listened to and the, monk in there he's a dominican friar and he said if our end as as a christian is the beatific vision which is in their mm-hmm. conception just knowing and loving god just knowing mm-hmm. him and and possessing the knowledge of god then that's mostly a contemplative thing mm-hmm. and so we should seek to cultivate some of that and he said 
as the end is, so the means to the end shall be or yep. should be. That's good. Um, like we should seek to have a, a rhythm of contemplation if that's where we're actually going to be ending up. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so, so just kind of wrapping it up, if I could ask two kind of fire rapid speed questions to you that I'm really interested in. Um, yeah. Who's the most, out of all these figures you studied, is there somebody that you particularly draw inspiration from more than the others? Hmm. Oh man, that's a good question. Um, wow. Uh, I think probably we, we haven't, of the ones we've just discussed today or someone else? It could be someone else. Okay. I think I probably, um, I'm probably most um, inspired by uh, St. Cyril and St. Methodius in the ninth century who were missionary mm -hmm. monks. So, Interesting. We got to learn more about them as well then. Yeah. Sam, do you have anything? Um, mine, well, I was just going to try and end us with any, any final thoughts of yours. So like uh, the question would be why should someone care about all this stuff that we just talked about? Like yeah. wrapping it all up, like, they, they just heard all this information about missions and monks and um, <clears throat> everything that happened in the, in the past. Why should someone care about it? Yeah, well, I, I mean, from a purely historical thing, we want to understand the past and understand it accurately and recover what we can. Mm -hmm. And um, we do live in a turbulent world. Um, what we're facing, though, is nothing new. And monks were set apart uh, to God. Um, but they also left the monastery and, and served in, in very um, courageous ways. And I mm -hmm. think that, um, again, I, I, don't, uh, I don't think that necessarily um, a Christian should become a monk. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. But, but, we, but as, we, as we look at the story of the church, um, just as we would look at any figure, uh, what, what can we learn from them? What can we emulate um, and gain wisdom for our days. So yeah. I think the, the things that we've already said, I think for me, uh, the monastic witness uh, teaches me that uh, I, I can't go I, I, I can't go a day without prayer and, and, and with prayer meditating on scripture and even parts of my day, um, I need to come back to prayer. Um, and, um, and God is pleased to use suffering. And to refine us in that. So. Yeah. That's a really good, I think, way to end it. Yeah. Well, Will, you said you had two rapid fire questions. What was your second oh, one? Well, this is out of left field, and now this is going <laughs> to. But I wanted to ask whether you knew anything about Leif Erikson. Uh, not and whether much. You've, whether you studied it, because I find him just a super fascinating figure, too. Like, this is like, I don't feel like we know a lot about him. And he like evangelizes most of, I think, Iceland. Uh, yeah, he brought a bishop with. with him when he was expelled from Norway and went to Iceland. He brought a bishop with him. So, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's I, me and Samuel are just history, church history nerds and stuff. And so we yeah. just find this stuff fascinating. And I like to think that these things actually happened yeah. is just fascinating. It's like that these people live lives like this, mm -hmm. uh, that and even that we are a result of missions in mm -hmm. a significant yes. way. Like, I think, I think that, um, when I think about missions, I think of, uh, somebody with dark skin, perhaps with piercings and stuff on their face. Uh, that's what like a mission context looks like. But in reality, um, I'm a result of missions as much as them. 
Um, I'm a result of the evangelization of English people and things Mm -hmm. like that. So, um, yeah, it's just fascinating stuff. Yeah. 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 So so uh, for your time. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Smither. Um, and everyone listeners, if you, uh, if you enjoyed what uh, he had to say and the interview, uh, please like, and subscribe. And if you feel led to support us, please do so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Thank you.